0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, listeners, are you looking to monetize your craft? I know many of you out there are independent creators, publishers, educators, and of course, podcasters. If you're looking to monetize your passion, you have to check out memberful.com. Used by the biggest creators online, memberful is providing best in class membership software for entrepreneurs and creators and has everything you need to run a successful and scalable membership program. In other words, Memberful allows you to build sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience. You can send paid email newsletters directly through the platform, for example, without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can also publish your paid newsletter to a Memberful-hosted members-only website, putting your brand front and center. And most importantly, you retain full control and ownership of your audience. Setup is super simple, so get started today at Memberful.com. That's Memberful.com. .com and start earning. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. If you enjoy the show and E2 is part of your podcast routine, you can support us. Go to glow.fm slash E2. That's glowfm e 2 And most importantly, a huge thanks to those that have supported us thus far. In this episode, we chat with Michael Serbinas, who's the founder and CEO of League, a technology-focused healthcare company with more than $1 billion of exits under his belt. He's known as a visionary entrepreneur who's built transformative technology platforms across several industries. Serbinas founded and built Kobo, Probably one of the most notable competitors to Amazon's Kindle. He also founded and helped build DocSpace, Critical Path, and going way back, was one of the first 10 employees at Zip2, alongside, you guessed it, Elon and Kimball Musk. In this episode, we dive into Servinas' early days in undergrad and his choice to pass on job offers from both Microsoft and Nortel in favor of going to California to work on Zip2. His numerous startup and exit experiences with Zip, DocSpace, and Kobo what he looks for from founders he invests in, how League is attempting to change healthcare, and so much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Michael Servinus. So in grade nine and 10, you had won a number of science projects. Is this sort of the impetus of the passion for entrepreneurship? Like when did that start?
1: Yeah, I, I jokingly say I won the Nerd Olympics, you know, I had to do a science fair project. It was part of our school's gifted program. I happened to be in it, and I was kind of oriented towards science and math. And so for me, doing doing a science fair project seemed like an acceptable uh, you know, thing to spend some time on. And all of a sudden I won. Uh, you know, the school, the city, the country, and, you know, it came with awards, uh, which came with money, and which came with, you know, this recognition that I think a lot of people do get at some point in their life that, hey, I'm pretty good at this. And, you know, I learned about this word that I didn't know before about engineering and making something, applying science to make something, solve problems, build things. And so that was really the start of it. And, you know, one thing led to another and I was winning an international science and engineering fair, which is put on by the National Science Foundation. And for me, that was the beginning of my love and passion for engineering, uh, which led to entrepreneurship.
0: Mm -hmm. So you go to Queens, right, for engineering. Uh, You spend undergrad there. Did you have, we'll talk about Zip2 in a moment. Did you have any other Small side hustles, little entrepreneurial ventures during undergrad? I, I
1: worked on a bunch of projects, uh, you know, getting paid uh, you know, X dollars, you know, 10, 20 K, 30K to work on uh, video games. There's a video game called Gone Fishing that I worked on. And I can't remember what what I made on that, but it was a ton of money for a, a
0: student. So you graduate. Ultimately, from Queens with a degree in engineering. And then do you have an offer from Microsoft to go full time?
1: Yeah. So in the fall of my senior year, I um, I didn't do the thing that everybody else was doing, like the job fair thing. I felt like I had a pretty secure situation at Microsoft and I had uh, spent some time at Microsoft Research. And really, they were just expecting that I was going to go there um, at graduation. And I got a call, and you know, back then I shared a house with uh, six guys, and there was like a house phone. No one had a cell phone, and uh, I had a call on the house phone from a friend that I knew from my first year, Kimball Musk, and you know, he's on the phone with him and his brother, and he's telling me about this about this company, Global linking information network. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense. They couldn't really, there was really not a, like a job offer with real money attached to it, but it sounded great moving to California. This is an opportunity to do something different.
0: Mm -hmm. Were you and Kimball in the same undergrad residence at Queens? Yeah, we were both in Gordon House and, um, and in my
1: first year uh, you know, during Frost week, I met him. He was my floor senior or floor Don, I guess is what they were called. We went out with them and, you know, partied with them. And, uh, and then once later, I guess, later that year, we were both dating these roommates. Um, so we got to know, know each other that way because we were always at the same place, uh, together.
0: Uh, okay. So you, you decide to take this gig in California Global information, whatever I've lost the the previous name of it turns it turns yeah. and becomes and transforms itself into Zip2. Like at the time, entrepreneurship just wasn't that sexy. What did your parents think?
1: They thought it was making a bad decision. Um, they thought, wait a minute, he's got the opportunity to go make you know upwards of a hundred grand a year as a first year engineer right out of university, working for. The most successful technology company ever, and you know I'd gotten to meet Bill, uh, Bill Gates, a bunch of times, and Nathan Merivold, the CTO, mm. uh, and they knew that that was you know a pretty big deal, and certainly the money seemed like a pretty big deal, and yet I was choosing to go to California with a bunch of people that I didn't really know that well, and a company that really I couldn't explain because it, there was nothing to explain yet. And so they thought I'd kind of lost my mind. You know, my dad drove me to the airport. I check in, I go through customs, I get stopped at customs. I get told, Michael, it's guys like you that are taking jobs away from young Americans. I'm sorry, but your access is uh, denied today. And I was like, I was stunned. What does that What does that actually mean? Anyways, my dad came and picked me up, tail between my legs. Um, I went back home to Hamilton, but I was pretty determined. Uh, I went the next day to the Niagara Falls border, land border, got my TN, flew out the next day uh, with my visa, you know, already in my passport. And then Chris Smith and Kimball picked me up at the airport in San Francisco and, you know, brought me to Mountain View.
0: How are you living? Um, I mean, you're not making money at that point. Like, did you have a conversation with Dad and said, "Like, look, Dad, it's going to take a little bit until this company gets off the ground. Um, I need three to six months of allowance."
1: Yeah. So um, the guys, the guys actually had a place for me to stay. Mm-hmm. So that was a part of the the, the deal, and so that was kind of covered. And then you know, eventually uh, there was a funding round, and uh, I got a little bit of money, and so you know, I could eat and. Uh, Beyond what I was being fed in the office, but it wasn't a lot. Yeah, so I I didn't dare have that conversation with my dad. That would just, you know, add fuel to the fire. I just kind of went with it. Were either of your parents entrepreneurs? So uh, my parents are from uh, part of northern Greece that um, you know is very, I would say, generally poor. My grandfather was uh, was a merchant. You know, he had, he had a a store and, but my parents, when they came to Canada, they worked, I mean, Hamilton was a place where there were jobs and, you know, there's a steel industry was there. So my dad worked with, worked in a number of steel companies, um, and then eventually general electric, uh, and their Canadian appliance, uh, division. Um, and then at a certain point he left that to start a, uh, landscaping business and we did it together. And so, you know, learning about pricing and margin and customer service and how to do all that, I kinda learned from my dad while I was in high school. And so I kinda learned, uh, I kinda learned the meaning of hard work and um,
0: yeah, how to grow that business
1: and how to, how to do the basics, I guess, uh, of being an entrepreneur.
0: Um, going back to something you were saying earlier about you having no idea how to explain Zip2 to your dad. Obviously, things get clear. As you look back, what was Zip2 all about? And how do you explain Zip2 to, to a layperson?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I like to talk about it as it it really pioneered local search. And it created a business model around local search for the media industry, for newspapers, enabling newspapers to undergo, I guess, their first the first phase of their digital transformation, but it was really about helping people find services and products in their in their neighborhoods and their cities uh, really easily with the internet, um, replacing in some ways the yellow pages, replacing in some ways classifieds, but really just enabling this very simple consumer service of you know finding things that you need
0: uh, in your neighborhood. It sounds like just a fun experience to have as your first entrepreneurial venture.
1: I look back on that time and I think I'm so glad I did it. The math said I shouldn't have done it. I should have gone to Microsoft. I took the leap, which is something I tell, I tell young entrepreneurs or, or people that are thinking about entrepreneurship, taking that first step, it's the most important step. Um, so I'm glad I did it. Uh, I also look back and I think, man, I was so immature. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, not only did I not know what I was getting myself into, but you know, I I think at that time, having had the experience of, you know, winning the Nerd Olympics, NASA, JPL, Microsoft, you know, I thought a lot about myself. And I got to meet Elon in those days. And Elon also thought a lot of himself. And and I remember thinking, building companies is a team sport. Um and to get the best out of your team, you know, it's not all all about telling them what to do, right? It's about, you know, them being clear on a mission, on your values, uh, the what, Um, but you need to let people become better versions of themselves and really grow, I think, to find success. You know, Elon and Kimball and that crew, they were all learning too. I was learning, but it felt like for me, uh, I needed to go and do something on my own. And so I didn't stay very long. You know, there was a, a a period of time there where I followed a girlfriend somewhere else and kind of didn't think about it for a while, but then got back into the seat and thought, this is what I want to do. I can do this and I can do it better.
0: Yeah, you quickly get to work right on your next thing. I think the next venture is DocSpace, which you started in 1997. Um, given the fact that Zip2 was sold in '99. How did you incubate DocSpace, and were you splitting time a little bit between Zip2 and DocSpace?
1: No, no. I mean, I really just left. I left Zip2, and I took some time to, you know, think about what I wanted to do next. And then I met some, I met some folks that were were co-founders uh, along with me, and this idea of people will want to use the internet to store. Uh, store their files uh, in the cloud, and I can't believe, like even today, almost whatever, more than twenty years later, the cloud is still some funny, you know, funny thing to a lot of people when they say, "What is the cloud anyway?" Uh, <laughs> but back then, you can imagine nobody knew what the cloud was, and um, and this idea of creating a place where people could store their files, their documents, their photos, their music uh, in the cloud. Uh, Was a powerful idea, and it went fast. You know, we went from zero to one of the, you know, the main players in that category pretty quickly.
0: That company sold to Critical Path, was it? You got it. Okay. Um, What year was that? Uh, We sold.
1: uh, The transaction happened right before um, you know the market turned in two thousand and one. So within like. 10 days of the bubble bursting.
0: And then you go and you work with Critical Path for what, five years or so? That's right. What was that like? It was like a war.
1: That's how I remember it. I mean, we sold We sold at a time when the market was still climbing. And even as the market started tanking, Critical Path had a great business, cloud-based email and other services, uh, you know, a cloud-based utility, for internet services and um, and storage just fit with that that whole model. Yeah, it felt like it was an awesome fit and I was traveling around the world. So here I am, kind uh, of 26 years old, going to 50, 60 different countries and uh, meeting with large telcos, governments, large enterprise and we were, you know, we were one of the leaders if not the leader providing, you know, cloud, email, storage, and other services. And and we thought that we were going to be immune from this, um, you know, this technology bubble that uh, that was bursting. And so, anyhow, I, I really saw that it was a great opportunity. I didn't sell a lot of stock. And then all of a sudden, things started to turn.
0: Given that experience, I mean, do you draw parallels between that tech bubble bursting, 2000, 2001, and where we are now. I mean, we've got the stock markets at all-time highs, cryptocurrency, all-time highs, uh, artwork, <laughs> all-time highs. Um, do you feel a little bit nervous as to where we are right now?
1: Um, yeah. I, I I mean, I think it's different. I've been through, you know, the bubble bursting in, you know, 2000 frame. I've been through the... Financial crisis and kind of 0809. and then obviously the pandemic has been a, a different experience still, and yeah, I, I think the inflation that we're seeing and just the amount of free money that is out there is, you know, artificially inflating a lot of assets. There's a bunch of big names that are driving really, almost the entire market. I don't know. I think the contrabet is risky right now, also because, um, you know, this. This time is different. There are there are a ton more, I mean, billions of uh, more customers for services, you know, for digital services than there were ten or twenty years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it is a it is a interesting time, a high risk time, but I think the digital transformation trend across many industries is,
0: is not going away. When you see or talk to, um, young entrepreneurs that are starting product based companies, given the supply chain woes that we're experiencing right now, do you kindly steer them away from a product based business given those risks?
1: Um, to be honest, I mean, like when I started, uh, we started Kobo and, um, we eventually made an e-reader, uh, or several e-readers that we sold uh, around the world. I mean, dozens of models and dozens of countries, millions of units, tens of millions of units. In the end, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. We learned along along the way, and we encountered all kinds of challenges that were unique to that time and that that market, that also involved supply constraints and you know scarce resources. And we figured it out. So I, I mean, I think where there's an end customer customer demand, where there's a market, and where you have a value prop, I think those things are more important. And I think great entrepreneurs figure it out. So I wouldn't dissuade them because of the times. I would I would maybe dissuade them, or maybe offered some you know some counsel around. Everyone says this is harder than it looks, because it is, and
0: you know, and I know that firsthand. So Kobo was founded in 2009. Amazon, I think, launched the Kindle in 2007. So as you got into this market, like what was your thesis here?
1: The thesis was that uh, digital transformation was coming to all categories of content. Books would be next and books would be, books would go digital in, uh, in a much more frictionless way, which is, it's just text. And and so you didn't have all sorts of other complexities with video or music. And frankly, the leading indicator was time spent online reading, reading articles, reading blogs. I mean, people were just doing more and more and more of it. So the thesis was books would be next. Everyone would have digital books, just like they have digital music and movies and TV shows. And there would be uh, a typical market structure that we see in other parts, other sectors or subsectors of tech, where you'd have a number one, number two, and really no one else would matter. They would be platform plays, and at least one of them would be a pure play, you know, the Netflix of the category. And so we felt like timing wise, while Kindle was out a couple years earlier, remember the first ebook businesses were you know, out 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier. And, you know, companies like Barnes and Noble who totally blew themselves up on prior uh, attempts. And so I didn't really look at that as, you know, Amazon being out with Kindle a year or two earlier as a problem. I kind of saw it more as as another signal that we're on the right track. Uh, I didn't believe that a hardware led solution was, was the answer. So another part of our thesis was to be an open platform and to enable anyone on any device in any language in any country to, you know, download, read, store, share content. And so, so that was the second point. And the third point was based on this insight, the majority of book buying happens in a, pretty narrow demographic, and it skews more female than male, and it tends to happen at bookstores. And so we were gonna build a platform that enabled bookstores to enter the digital book or ebook era, and you know we were gonna capitalize on the fact that Amazon was entering and everyone was afraid of Amazon. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We were gonna be that open platform, the ingredient brand. So Kobo by WH Smith in the UK, by FNAC in France, by Montadori in Italy, and so on and so on around the world. And we are gonna build that open architecture platform that got the best book buying customers that happened to be at bookstores, who happened to be loyalty card carrying people at bookstores. And so that was a play.
0: It didn't take you guys long to make some noise. In January, 2012, uh, Kobo's bought by Rakuten for 315 million or so. Do you think that you would have uncovered this opportunity for Kobo if it wasn't for your time at Indigo? We skipped over that, but you spent, what, two plus years at Indigo Books here in Canada?
1: So my wife and I had come back, um, decided to settle settle down in, in Toronto, or at least move to Toronto. We were starting a family. So we had our first daughter and about to have our second daughter. And I thought it was going to be a stay-at-home dad, really more support family and support my wife, who is... Taking on this new role, uh, leading Morgan Stanley in Canada, and then I got introduced to Heather Reisman, who is the founder and CEO of Indigo, uh, who suggested I, you know, join her and we could figure this thing out together. I prefer being an entrepreneur versus being an employee, and so I remember suggesting that I don't know that this is going to be a long-term thing for me, but while I'm in between, you know, I can help out and help you with your technology challenges and I could learn a bit about the book business. Yeah, it was about 12 months and 12 to 18. And then we kind of got back to the ebook idea and incubated inside for a while and then spun it out. But you're right, I mean, I learned a ton
0: from that time that I didn't know. Just adding things up here. So Kobo is sold uh, for 300 plus million. DocSpace also sold for 500 or so million, Zip2, upwards of 300 million. So by 2012, you've got three multi $100 million exits under your belt. Have you come up with a set of pillars or principles, if you prefer, for building and exiting at this kind of multi million dollar level? Honestly,
1: I think it just kind of happens based on a confluence of many, many different factors. So being able to predict or to drive an outcome to a pick a number valuation you know type exit i i don't know i know i know i've done it or i've been a part of a few of them um, but i wouldn't say that it happened based on a plan i think in each of those circumstances and i was certainly much closer to the outcome in docspace and and then later with kobo even to a degree with Critical Path when they ultimately exited to uh, private equity, where we just found the best way forward to achieve the mission of the company. And sometimes that means M&A, and sometimes it means an IPO route. Sometimes, you know, it means you're, you need to shut it down. I think of my current experience, it's very different. The TAM is way bigger. I mean, it's a humong- healthcare is a humongous market and there is a path to build a generational company that is independent that belongs as an independent company there's space or room for it as an independent company in the public markets or private markets but those other companies i just didn't think there was that that room or that was possible right i saw that in the content category eventually there would be aggregators you know large tech aggregators of all the different types of content and anything else would be an exception. So you needed to be a part of an ecosystem or you're eventually going to get squeezed out because it was going to be too hard, too expensive to acquire the customers you needed for your slice alone. And same goes in the storage business at the time, just based on the number of you know people that were available to buy that kind of service, it didn't make sense for that service to be a standalone. It had to be a part of, a set of services or set of utilities. And so that's why the critical path deal made sense. You know, much later, of course, over a decade later, Dropbox was formed and the market was different and there was room to be an independent. But I would even challenge that. Now, I don't know that we're gonna see those companies say stay standalone companies. But um, anyhow, that's how I think about it. Um, driving an exit to a certain price It's a ton of factors that are involved in that.
0: I know you've done some angel investing. You've got three angels capital going. And is that still active, by the way? It is. You know, we've got a couple dozen investments. And uh, I would
1: say in the last two years uh, with the pandemic, you know, we mostly mostly started investing in other funds Mm. versus direct into
0: companies. And I think that's mostly a matter of just a function of time. For the direct investments that you have made, what what do you look for from the founder, from the founding operator? So I I like the idea, or for me, I, I you know there's a
1: there's a bit of a template uh, that starts with a version of an imagined future that the entrepreneur can you know describe in in some vivid detail uh, that they want to create. If that doesn't exist and I'm not excited by it. Uh, I'm kind of not interested. So vision, I kind of look for vision first. I look for grit. You know, I'd say I come from a hardworking background. You know, my dad gave me that example. You need resilience, you need grit. You need to not be wedded to a particular business model or a particular way or a particular form of your company. You need to be wedded to the vision and and the mission around like, what value will you bring to what customer? But everything else is like subject to change. And I look for, you know, a competitive streak. So those are some of the things that I look for. Uh, you know, there are industries that are, or categories that are more interesting to me than others. Uh, so, you know, for example, I made an investment probably four four to five years ago now in a quantum computing company Uh, I chair a theoretical physics Institute. So, uh, and I have a physics background. So that to me was, was interesting and was perhaps a flyer, but wow, is it exciting? And the progress that they've made at Xanadu is just awesome. Um, we're entering the quantum computing age. And so bets like that one and investments like that one in entrepreneurs like Christian are the kind of bets that I
0: like to make. I'll ask you, what's the imagined vision here? for League. What's the imagined future?
1: Yeah, I kind of started with my experience as a consumer with healthcare, living in Canada or California, sucks and or sucked. <laughs> I thought, why is this not like other services that either, you know, I've been a part of building or others have built? You know, why is this more like my grandparents' cable TV and not more like Netflix? And so the imagined future was Personalized, digital, always on. Healthcare will look more like Netflix and less like my grandparents' cable TV in the future. Uh, And I want to build the platform that enables that. The idea of helping me find or take that next best action that is right for me can have all kinds of economic benefits and health outcome benefits uh, that are both good for the individual, good for the payer, whether that's a company or insurance company, good for the entire ecosystem. So that was the imagined future. Future of healthcare will be digital, personalized, always on. We wanna build build a platform for that, that people can use every day. So core in our mission statement back in 2014, it's actually seven years ago this past Friday, core to that mission statement was empowering people with their health every day. Not something that you would do once a year, like a virtual doctor visit, or you know, like enrolling in insurance, but something that you could use every day. Uh, and actually that's where the name league comes from. A league is the distance you can travel walking in an hour. And that comes from ancient Rome where the Roman Senate enacted a healthcare policy. And part of it was personal responsibility and everyone could take a part in that and walk every day. So that's what we set out to build. And of course, you know, the business model and, uh, and what the company has become, you know, has changed a number of times um, from where we started. But in some respects today, we are almost, almost exactly what we wanted to
0: build, but getting here has not been a straight line. So eight, almost eight years in, uh, 76 million raised to date. Where are you at in terms of the business model?
1: We started selling in 2017. That was our first full year of sales. So a couple of years of experimentation, you know, finding product market fit. And then we started to get a ramp in 2017, offering League as a SaaS service to enterprises, initially small to medium-sized enterprises, and then eventually bigger and bigger ones where we would become the one place to go for their employees to access, navigate, and pay for healthcare. So digital wallet of all your benefits and total rewards, access to health services, a concierge, marketplace, and then a personalized health journey for each individual. And we sold that on a per user per month or per employee per month basis, and we got bigger and bigger traction. The first deals were like $1,000 of ARR, and then we got into the millions of dollars of ARR and what we realized is getting an enterprise one at a time is not the only way to go about this digital transformation was meeting you know the shores of insurance companies and large provider systems or hospital systems and other brands like pharmacy or consumer health organizations and so the idea that we could be the platform that they could build on to transform their experience to their customers accelerating their time to market. So instead of them launching in five years and frankly not being that competitive, they could launch in six months and have a best of breed experience on a platform as service basis. That's really where the businesses evolved to. And so we uh, power large scale platforms like uh, in Canada with shoppers and Loblaw uh, called PC Health, in the US with Humana, which is one of the largest uh, payers in the country. And increasingly, we are that underlying platform. You know, Just like the world of e-commerce needs a Shopify uh, or the world of development, building applications in the cloud needs an AWS or a GCP, a Google Cloud. We believe that healthcare needs a league to build on and accelerate the transformation uh, delivering compelling consumer experiences.
0: I agree, and from a personal perspective, um, my wife, who is a uh, owner-operator of an independent compounding pharmacy, would love to use a platform like this. Uh, I know you mentioned shoppers, but are you powering some independence? Question is timing. Um, what has happened in
1: the last 12 to 18 months is every organization in the sort of healthcare ecosystem that had been thinking about a digital transformation or had started, and maybe it was moving more slowly, everyone has accelerated their efforts. Everyone is in a hurry up offense. There are new entrants, new competition, you know, big tech is getting into the game. And frankly, the consumer has had a real need uh, for many different types of digital services through the pandemic and frankly had a taste for what it could be like if something just worked better you know in a personalized digital way on your phone and they want it so there is such an acceleration in the marketplace you know league has never been busier you know getting ready for a blockbuster you know biggest quarter ever which every quarter needs to be a biggest quarter ever when you're uh when you're you know growing on a doubling or tripling uh year on year trajectory but it's continuing and actually accelerating for us or growth rates actually going up which you know is harder and harder to do after you've doubled or tripled for five years in a row
0: well it's an amazing story league.com for more powering the digital transformation of healthcare. congratulations on all of your success thus far thank you so much for coming on the show where can people uh, find out more about league and specifically follow what you're doing mike
1: yeah, so League.com is the place to go to learn more about League. And um, as far as what I'm doing, you know, I'm very passionate about uh, a number of you know, disruptive technologies and, and fundamental science and, and research that's enabling it. So AI at the Vector Institute, I'm on the board there. Uh, Perimeter Institute, I chair that. That's the largest theoretical physics institute on the planet. Uh, if Perimeter were a country, and recognize Perimeter is a place in Waterloo, started by Mike Lazaridis, the BlackBerry co-founder. Perimeter was a country. It would have more scientific discovery, citations, breakthroughs, awards in physics than 190 other countries. So it really has put Canada on the map and I spent a lot of time there. It's a part of this quantum revolution. Uh, And then of course, Creative Destruction Lab. People can follow me there. I'm a huge supporter of CDL where I've made most of my investments in the last five years directly into startups.
0: Michael, thanks so much for your time and to listeners. Thank you so much again for tuning in.
1: That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit scriberbase.com
0: for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.
1: Hey there, I'm DC. I host The Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today
0: to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electricast. Hey,
1: guys. It's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, all in the Spanish remixes out now on Electric Hass Records. And always remember,
0: be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.